we're in the fourth week of our On the Road series, and in this series, we're trying to figure out how do we deepen our relationship with God. And if you've been here for the, from the very beginning, you know, we've seen the four circles. We'll throw them up one more time. I'm sure you're getting used to them. But if you're at church this weekend, you would fall into one of these four circles. You're either exploring a relationship with God, the possibility, or you're beginning in a relationship with God, or maybe you're growing in your relationship with God, or maybe you would say you're God-centered. You're all in. In other words, when you get to this point, you're trusting God with every area of your life. And we've seen in this series, trust is the key word. As our trust in God grows, our relationship with God grows, as, our, as, our, as, our, as we deepen our trust with God, we deepen that relationship. It just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So we're trying to talk about in this series and figure out what are the things that God actually uses in our lives that helps us deepen that relationship, deepen that trust. This weekend, we're going to be talking about the role that personal disciplines play in the process. Discipline, that's an interesting word. I heard somebody once say that a discipline, those are the things you're supposed to do. You know you're supposed to do them, but you don't want to do them, right? That's a pretty good definition of a discipline. I really know I ought to do that, but I don't really want to do it. See, eating ice cream is not a discipline. You don't have any problem wanting to eat ice cream, right? Uh, watching TV, that would not be a discipline, okay? You don't have any problem watching TV. Posting on Facebook, for many of you, that is not a discipline. A discipline would be stop posting on Facebook. That would be a discipline. We don't care that you're riding around on a sunny day with your top down. We don't care. We don't care you took the dog for a walk. We don't care you just ate ice cream. We don't even care you're proud of your first grader. He's a first grader. What has he done that you can possibly really be proud of? I mean, let's be honest, right? So a discipline would be quit telling us that stuff. We really don't care, but that's another series for another time. Disciplines are things that we're supposed to do that we really don't want to do. For example, exercising is a discipline. We all know it's good for us, but who really wants to do it? It hurts, it takes time, it's inconvenient. But I learned a long time ago it's actually easier to stay in shape than it is to get in shape. So sometimes you develop that discipline, you know. Uh, for me, getting a yearly physical is a discipline. But even though I know it's wise, it's the right thing to do, I'll be honest, I dread it every year. Eating healthy is a discipline. It's especially a discipline for me since Laura went to this gluten-free diet. I mean, if we want to just sit back, watch a movie, and order a pizza, it's going to be a gluten-free pizza. This is what I've learned. The box that the pizza comes in actually tastes better. So I just, I just eat the box, right? But eating healthy, that is a discipline, right? This is what's interesting. If you think about it, Often those things in your life that begin as a discipline, it's the thing you know you need to do, but you don't really want to do it. Those things that begin as a discipline, often they become something you enjoy. I'll give you an example. Uh, years ago, I was in my early 30s. I'm pastoring a church in Southern California, and uh, we're playing softball, a bunch of young guys together. And we decided we wanted to get back into college shape, you know, competitive, those days where you're at your top, you know, playing sports. So we were going to get back in shape, and we decided the way we were going to do this is we were going to start riding bikes together. So it was about 12, 15 of us. We went to the garage. We drug out our rusty old bikes. You know, we greased up the chains and, and the crank. And, and uh, we decided to go bike riding. And I'll never forget the first time we went riding, we started heading up Kalima Road, which means nothing to you if you don't live in La Mirada, California. But it's a steep climb that goes over the hills down into the valley, which means you're also going to have to come up back up this hill to get back home, right? And I remember about halfway up this hill, I mean, my legs are burning, and I'm sucking wind, and I'm hitting the wall, and I'm thinking, I I don't know that I really want to do this. 
Maybe I ought to do it, but I don't want to do it, right? It was so hard. But you know, we, we kept doing it, and we kept writing, and we kept writing to the point it almost became an addiction. I mean, one by one, we're like, if we're serious about this, we can't be riding these rusty old bikes anymore. So we started to drop ridiculous amounts of money on these new high-tech, lightweight alloy bikes, you know. And we were constantly changing the rims and the hubs and the cranks. And, and we would make them lighter and lighter and lighter. And then before you know it, you know, we're wearing that aerodynamic biking clothing, you know. Those little tight shorts and shirts with, with all the imaging and the branding all over. By the way, have you ever been riding down the road and all of a sudden you see a pack of cyclists? Like 30, 40, 50. I know you've seen them and it's incredibly irritating because it pretty much blocks traffic. Do you know why they ride in packs like that? I'll tell you. They ride like that because if you ever go out in public dressed like that by yourself, you're going to get a beat down. You know what I'm saying? So you got to stay in a pack. But anyway, we're riding, you know, wearing these clothes and these aerodynamic helmets, you know. And before long, every Saturday morning, we would get together and we had a 42-mile loop we would ride. Up Kalima, it didn't matter now. We got the aerodynamic clothes, the new bikes. I mean, you could smoke a cigar and ride up Kalima, you know. And we'd go down in the valley, and it was 42 miles, and we would get back home, and we'd feel so good about ourselves. And we'd get together a couple of nights during the week and on Sunday afternoons. We may put in 100 to 200 miles a week. My point was this. Often the thing that starts out as a discipline, it becomes a lifestyle, even maybe an obsession. Here's another way to think about disciplines. Sometimes discipline is doing what you don't want to do now so that you can do what you want to do later. In some way, it really is about delayed gratification. For example, that's how you retire one day, right? That's how you eventually get through school. You decide, I'm going to do what I don't want to do right now. See, I'd much rather party, but I'm going to study. I'm going to do what I don't want to do, so one day I'm going to have something to show for it. That's discipline. Now this week, we're going to see how God uses these private disciplines, these spiritual disciplines to grow our trust and our confidence in Him. And I think what we're going to learn over the next few minutes is this. These disciplines that we're going to talk about, they have to do more with our development of our trust in God than how they actually benefit us in our life, or maybe even the people around us. And I say that because think about it, when we pray, and we're going to see prayer is one of the disciplines that Jesus talks about. When we pray, it usually goes something like this. God, why don't you fix my marriage? God, why don't you find my husband a job? God, why don't you heal her? God, why don't you fix this? God, why don't you change that? But typically when we pray, it's about us or it's about the people around us. When we give, we're going to see that's another one of these disciplines that Jesus talks about. When, if you're honest, it's usually a trigger response. For most of us, it's like when I see, I, when I see a need, I give. If I don't see a need, I don't give. But I want you to understand that approach to discipline is about helping us or maybe helping out someone else. But this weekend, we're going to look at these very specific disciplines in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at them through the lens of what do these disciplines do in me and what do they do for me as it relates to my growing trust and my growing dependence on God. That's what we're going to talk about. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Again, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have the your Bible with you. I hope you'll start bringing them if you don't bring it. We're going to put the verses up on the screens. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus sets up this discussion. He says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness. And as we're going to see, this is a reference to the disciplines. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father 
in heaven. So Jesus sets all of this up by saying, I'm going to talk to you about some things. And these things that we're going to talk about, they're private things. And if you will begin to do these private things, if you will begin to do these things privately, and if you'll begin to do these things consistently, your heavenly Father is going to see you doing these things. He's going to take notice of that. And Jesus says, he is going to reward you. Now, if your response is, whoa, whoa, wait a second, Mike, I don't do it for the reward. That's fine. But I'm just going to warn you, according to Jesus, God may reward you anyway, okay? And then Jesus, he's actually going to give us a list of these private disciplines, three of them, these, these spiritual disciplines. And we're really going to just focus on one, but I want you to understand this principle applies to all of these disciplines. He gives it to us in verse 2 and he says this, so when you give to the needy, now by the way, this wasn't the tithe, this wasn't the 10% that the average Jew gave to the temple. And just so you know, uh, to those first century Jews, when they gave that tithe, when they gave that 10%, it felt a little bit like a tax. It was kind of like something they had to do. It wasn't a legal thing, but it was God's law. And let's be honest, I say that because a lot of you feel like that when you give. You would be the first one to say, yeah, I give because the Bible says so, but you wouldn't exactly call me a cheerful giver. I'm just an obedient giver, right? In other words, you're not all that happy about it. In fact, you would say, I'm a grumpy giver, but I'm doing it because this is what the Bible tells me to do. So this is over and above. This is an addition to that tie, to that 10% that these Jews gave to the temple. This is almsgiving. This is giving that you gave above your regular giving to the needy, to the poor. So Jesus says this in verse 2. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. In other words, Jesus would say to us, when you give, don't go out into the lobby, say, hey, everybody, look here. I'm now getting ready to deposit my check in the offering box. Take, take, take heed. Check this out, right? Don't do that. Or if you're driving to Crabtree Valley Mall and you get off at the exit there and there's a guy that says, I need money, Right? You don't blow the horn so everyone notices. Get out, wave the $5 bill and say, I will now address this need. Don't do that. It reminds me, a few years ago, I went to the Central African Republic, which at that time, and I think still is, the poorest country on the planet. Think about this. The average household income for this country, 240 bucks a year, $20 a month. Worse than that, we're not in Bangui where the capital city is. We're out in the rainforest in pygmy villages. And we had stopped by a pygmy village uh, to visit because we had drilled a well there and then we'd started a church there. And so we were visiting to see how the pygmies were doing, how the church was doing. And while they were there, they had this little celebration and they presented us with a gourd. It was their way of saying thank you, right? So we get back in the Jeep with Jim. We put the gourd in the back and we go to the next pygmy village where we're thinking about drilling a well and starting the church. And I have to have a guy with me on this trip. He doesn't go to Hope anymore, so I can talk about him. But... Uh, um, he had aspirations to be a politician. And so I learned on this trip, everywhere we went, it was a photo op. So when we got there, Carl's laughing because Carl was with me. And uh, so we get there, and the, and the pygmy chief comes out to greet us. And this guy says, hang on for a second. And he runs and gets the gourd out of the back of the Jeep. And he runs up and he says, take a picture of me presenting it to the chief. Well, first of all, dang it, it wasn't your gourd. It was just as much my gourd as it was yours gourd. But the whole thing was... He just wanted this picture so he could come and show everybody how he went to Africa and he presented this pygmy chief with a gourd. That's what Jesus is talking about there. And this is what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, 
they have received their reward in full. Jesus says, if you do this just to get the recognition and the applause of men, hey, that's your reward, right? The reward that they've received in full is that they've already been honored by men. That's the reward. In other words, people will look at them and go, wow, you were so generous. Wow, she is so generous. So Jesus tells us here, there is a reward associated with being generous. And guess what? He says, that person just got theirs. That's their reward. Verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. By the way, some of you have been quoting that at work for years, and you didn't even know that came from Jesus. That came from Jesus. You ought to read the Bible. There's some cool stuff in here. But this is what Jesus said. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now notice this. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, your father who sees what you're doing privately with the right attitude, not to get the reward of men, but you're just doing it, he says, he will reward you. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us what the reward is. But based on the context of this passage, I'm guessing that maybe part of the reward reward will be honor. And I say that because, notice here, the one that gives publicly before men, he receives his honor from men. So I'm guessing that the one who gives in secret before God receives honor from God and I could be totally wrong it may have nothing to do with honor but Jesus makes it very clear there is going to be a reward as you privately fund the things that are close to the heart of God so let me ask you a question what if you really believe those words of Jesus what if you really believe that God saw your private financial generosity And what if you really, really, truly believed that he was going to reward you because of it? And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, Mike, are you saying that we're supposed to give, we're supposed to be generous so that we will be rewarded? Well, I didn't bring it up. Jesus brought it up. I'm just asking the question, what if you really believe that? You see, if you're here this weekend and you're not a very generous person, (laughs) I would argue That the reason you're probably not a generous person is because you don't believe this principle. In other words, the issue isn't really money. When you get right down to it, the issue is this. It's your trust and your confidence in God. In fact, if you read what the Bible has to say about money, and you know the Bible has more to say about money than anything else, it is almost always a trust in God issue. And I'll tell you why it's a trust in God issue. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need it. So what if you really believe that when you took your hard-earned money and you decided that you were going to use some of it to fund what God was doing all around the world through the church, what if you believed that God saw that and he was going to reward you because you privately gave? My guess is this. If you really believe that, there would be no sense of, oh, I only come to church once every eight weeks, and here he is talking about generosity. Why did I pick this week? See, it wouldn't be that, right? There would be none of the anxiety that some of you are feeling right now if you really believe that God saw it when you were generous and he rewarded you. You know what your attitude would be? would be like, wow, cool. I'm glad he's talking about this because here's another opportunity for us to invest in God's kingdom and to see lives changed, to see lives impacted all around the triangle and all around the world. But see, here's the the reason you don't feel that way is because, let's be honest, you don't believe this principle. 
So let me try and explain why the private discipline of giving really isn't a financial thing, it's a trust thing. Let me try to explain it this way. Everybody sitting here right now at any of our campuses, regardless of what your faith is, my guess is most of you are Christian, but maybe you're Buddhist, maybe you're out of a Hindu background, maybe Muslim, maybe even a Mormon background. Regardless of what your background is, regardless of what religion you claim, here's one thing we all have in common. When it comes to God, the higher power, the force, whatever you believe is out there, see, this is where we all have perfect faith. We are all 100% trusting God, whatever God means to you. We are all 100% trusting God for whatever is going to happen to us after we take our last breath, right? I mean, whether it's heaven, purgatory, paradise with 70 virgins, a planet that you get to populate, you're hoping to come back a butterfly instead of a dung beetle, whatever it is. However you picture eternity, however you picture the afterlife, you are trusting your version of God 100% for whatever happens to you when you take your last breath and when you die. And the reason that you're 100% trusting God is because you don't have any other choice, right? What other choice do you have? I mean, let's be honest, how much faith, how much trust does that take? You're just hoping that when you die, there is either somebody or something out there to welcome you to the other side. So you're either going through life trying to be a good person so good things are going to happen to you when you die, or maybe you put your trust in Jesus because you believed he died for your sins and now you're going to get to go to heaven when you die. But whatever you're doing, you're doing it because you are 100% trusting whatever's out there for whatever's going to happen to you after you die. But if you read the Gospels, you'll discover this is what Jesus taught all throughout the Gospels. Until you actually take your last breath and die. In other words, as long as there's still air in your lungs and life in your body, as long as you are still alive, what you are most likely trusting in most is your money. What you're trusting in most is your ability to control your environment, to control your circumstances, to control your life through the pursuit of wealth. Understand, that's what Jesus taught. And so I think what that means is this. If God wants to teach you to trust him now, then wouldn't it make sense that he would mess with the thing that you are trusting in most now in order to get you to trust in him more now? And I'll just tell you, Jesus' answer to that question is yes. Makes sense. That's why Jesus made statements like you can't trust, you can't serve God and money. You can't do that. And it's because, understand, our pursuit of money, our stress over money, our anxiety over money and wealth does more to compete with our devotion to God than anything else in our life. I mean, it's almost as if money is life. It's air. It's sustenance. It is the foundation of what our confidence is in. So Jesus, in the Gospels, he comes along and says, I know you trust me with your life. After you die, after all, what other choice do you really have? But he says, I want you to trust me in this life now. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to mess with the thing that you trust most in 
now. I'm going to mess with your money. And to help you in the process of learning to trust me now, Jesus says, I want you to give me some of your money. And when we hear that, we respond. But I don't have enough. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I want you to trust me. But the church doesn't really need my money. Jesus is like, yeah, but I want you to trust me. Because if what you're trusting in most is your money, and I want you to trust me, the only way I can teach you to trust me now is for me to mess with the thing that you have most of your trust in now. So you got to understand, that's why giving, that's why generosity is really a trust issue. It's not a money issue. And that's why no matter how long you've been a Christian, I'm just telling you, eventually God is going to come calling for your bank account. And it's not necessarily because he needs it. It's not because he wants it. It's because he simply wants to teach you to trust him more than you trust in your money. And this is another one of those areas where you, where you get to choose whether or not you're going to participate. It's kind of like with, we talked about the application of Scripture. Jesus said, you know what? You can hear it all day long. You can learn about it. You can even memorize it. But at some point, if you don't decide to apply it, it's going to make no difference in your life whatsoever. It's the same way when it comes to your money. You have to decide whether or not you're going to participate. And that's why tithing, 10% right off the top, is so important. You know what it's saying when you tithe? God, I am more interested in your kingdom than I am my own kingdom. And by giving to you first, I'm trusting you more than I'm trusting myself. By giving to you first, I'm trusting you more than I'm trusting my money. It is a heart issue. It is a trust issue. It is not a need issue, and it is not a money issue. And right now, some of you are fuming inside. I love this stuff. I love the tension. You are so hot and bothered right now. If I spit on you, you would fry. You just sizzle, right? And I get it. See, money is emotional. But do you know why money is so emotional? You know why it's so emotional? You trust in it. It represents your security. And right now, from your perspective, I'm the guy sitting on stage who's trying to separate you from your security. You trust in it. Otherwise, why would we be so emotional over pieces of paper with pictures of dead people on it, right? It's because of what it represents. And so Jesus says, listen, I know what money represents to you. It represents peace. It represents security. It represents freedom. It represents happiness. So I'm going to mess with it because I want to be the source of your peace. I want to be the source of your security. I want to be the source of your freedom and happiness. I don't want you to just trust me for eternity. I want you to trust me now. And for that to happen, you're going to have to trust me with your money. So I'm going to mess with it. The tension is this. Will God take care of me? Here's the tension. Okay. Will God take care of me if I put him first in the area of my finances? See, it is a trust issue. But I'm going to tell you something. Even when you begin to uncheerfully give. I mean, you're not a cheerful giver. You are a grumpy giver, okay? 
even when you begin to uncheerfully give, you begin to transfer the concern over your money and over your wealth to God. And this is what Jesus is seeing. When God sees that, that you trust him with every area of your life, even your money, Jesus is saying here, he is going to reward you. But it isn't just about money. It's also about our time. Look what it says in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There it is again. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Now notice this last phrase. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, who sees what you do privately, he will reward you. How about verse 16? When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. Now look at it, here it is. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, who sees what is done privately, he will reward you. This is what I want you to understand. When Jesus talked about praying, when Jesus talked about fasting in the context of Matthew chapter 6, this is what he was talking about. He was talking about our time, which really is our most valued asset. And I say that because chances are we're going to run out of time before we run out of money. I've always said you can always make more money. You can lose everything. You can make more money. When you run out of time, you can't make more time. When it's gone, it's gone. So Jesus takes our most valuable asset, and this is what he says. I also want you to devote some of your time to me. To which we respond, God, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea how busy I am? And God is like, wow, I had no idea. I am so sorry I bothered you, right? Of course he knows how busy we are. But this is what you got to understand. Ready? Busy, it's all about you. Busy is all about your family. Busy is all about your money, your career, your schooling. That's where your time goes. So Jesus says this, I want you to take some of your most valued asset, your time. Instead of devoting it all to you, I want you to devote some of it to me. I want you to spend some time praying. Sometimes I want you to fast. I want you to take some of your time and maybe connect in community in a small group. I want, to, I want you to take some of your time and stop spending it all on you and maybe you get involved in serving other people. And I understand, when we do those things with the right motive, according to Jesus, God is going to reward us. And this isn't about bartering with God. There's just something honoring to God when we take some time out of our busy lives and we do things like pray and fast and serve and connect with others in community. And it's because by doing so, this is what we're saying. God, I'm dependent on you. And I trust you with my most valued possession. And I'm telling you, when we do this, we develop this uncanny assurance that God is with us in every area of our life regardless of what we face we have this assurance God is with me and as we develop these disciplines this is what we're saying 
God, I trust you with my time, and I trust you with my wealth. And here's what's going to happen. God is going to use that to grow your trust and your confidence in him. And as a bonus, he's going to reward you in some way. Could be honor. Could be sustenance. Could be peace. But he's going to reward you. He's going to reward you. So here's my challenge. Do it for 30 days. We'll call it a 30-day challenge. Do it for 30 days. For 30 days. For the month of, what is it, May. <laughs> for the month of May, give God some of your time and give God some of your money. For example, when it comes to your time, maybe you want to set your alarm and you want to get up 30 minutes earlier and you want to spend some time praying. You want to spend some time reading the Bible. You say, Mike, I wouldn't even know where to start reading the Bible. Well, we're here to help you. You can go to the gethope.net website. You can go to the app, and we actually have a 30-day reading plan where you could read for 30 days. For 30 days, let me challenge you. For 30 days, what if you said for 30 days, I'm going to take some time that I would have given somewhere else for my own life, and I'm going to serve. That's four weeks. I'm going to try it for four weekends. I'm going to see what it's like to actually park cars in the parking lot. Greet people as they walk in the door. Serve some coffee. Change some diapers. Work in student ministries. But for 30 days, I am going to serve, but carve out some time. Set aside some time for God. When it comes to your money, write that first check. Make that first contribution through the Get Hope app. In other words, over the next 30 days, whenever some money comes your way, you just give that first 10% back to God. And if you don't want to give 10%, then pick another percentage. Pick five, pick three, I don't care. But don't be a needs-only giver. Don't be one of those individuals that's like, I'm just going to hold on to my money until I see a really sad picture that breaks my heart. I mean, I tell you what, if they show us another one of those little African kids with snot running out their nose and flies on their face, I'm telling you, I'm going to give some money. But I'm going to hold on to my money until I see something like that that breaks my heart. Or I'm going to hold on to my money until the church can really prove to me they need my money. Don't be like that. Become a person that says, I'm going to be a priority giver. Because I want to remind God and I want to remind myself that my confidence and my trust, it's not in my wealth, it's not in my time. It's in God. So give God your first few minutes. Give God your first few dollars. And I can tell you, this is what's going to happen. You ready? You ready? You're going to feel tension. You're going to feel tension. And just so you know, the tension you're going to feel is trust tension. So you're going to get up on Monday morning a half hour early, raring to go because you're pumped up from the weekend. By Tuesday, you're going to be like, I don't know if I really have time to do that again today. It's a trust tension. You're going to get ready to write that check, and you're going to say, man, if I write this check, am I really going to be able to pay my bills? It's a trust tension. You know what it's like? It's kind of like going to the gym and exercising a muscle for the first time. I mean, you probably will not smile through the whole time. It's probably going to hurt like the Dickens, but walking out of the gym, you're going to know that you're going to benefit from it. It's all about that delayed gratification. And I'm telling you, this is what a lot of people sitting around you this weekend would say. Eventually, that discipline, it'll become a habit. And then eventually, that habit will become a joy. And then you will eventually get to the point where you say, wow, I cannot imagine my life without it. And I'm going to tell you something. 
I desire that for you with all my heart. And I want you to know that's where God wants to take all of us. That's the journey. That's the road we're on. And when we get on that bike and we go there with him, I'm telling you, he will reward you. Or Jesus is lying. And I don't know exactly what the reward will be, but I do know the benefit. Your confidence and trust in God is going to grow. And your relationship with God is going to deepen. Because you're going to see him prove himself faithful over and over again. So 30 days, 30 days. And I know what some of you men are thinking because you've already told me. How come the sex challenge was only 30, 21 days, but this given and time thing is 30 days? Well, you can have sex 30 days too, right in the middle of all this. So pray, give, have sex for 30 days. Okay? And if you don't feel any differently, don't do it anymore. Don't do it anymore. But try it for 30 days. God, I'm going to trust you with my time, and I'm going to trust you with my wealth. Try it for 30 days and just see how God shows up in your life. It'll blow your mind, and your trust in him will go up. I guarantee it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to get together and to think about these disciplines that we often think about. Well, when I have this discipline, I, I give money and it helps other people. And sometimes it helps me feel good about myself. And when I carve some time out, I kind of feel good about myself. And, but God, really it's about trusting you more than we trust the things that mean the most to us. It's by putting you first in every area and every aspect of our lives. And Father, as I shared before, there, there are more promises in your word, the Bible, connected and associated to giving of our finances first to you than anything else. And it's almost as if you say, I dare you to trust me. And Father, I've seen it with time. When we put you first in the air of our time, it's like, how in the world are we going to get all this done? And we do the things that you've called us to do. And it's, it's almost as if you make the sun stand still. And we look back through the week. So many weeks I've gone into and I'm like, I can't get it all done this week. And I get to the end of the week and I'm like, thank you, God. Thank you. That's where you want to take us. And may we be willing participants to go there with you. In your name we pray. Amen.